Michael. Hi. How are you? I was just about to call you, but I'm glad you called me instead. Okay. Let's just do this thing, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. So how are you? You were running around a bit today, huh? Absolutely. The day is literally back to back and I don't use that word often. (laughs) No. And remember, we tried to schedule this before, but boy. Yes. And I always say this, right? It's like a high quality problem to be busy. Everyone's like, oh, I'm really sorry. And as long as you're accomplishing (laughs) stuff, right? Like, I guess it's a good thing, not a bad thing, no? It is. Uh, unfortunately, for entrepreneurs, a lot of meetings are um, <laughs> useless, not useless. as fruitful as they should be, especially <laughs> when they involve banks and governments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah useless is well, probably the wrong word, but not as efficient as we'd like, probably. There we go. I mean, you're, you're in Bangkok, right? Yes, I am. And living in Thailand, I presume. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different world, too. Right? Yeah, we can talk about that as well. So where, where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from South Africa. I'm a, I'm a German descent, uh, South African. Yeah, that's interesting too. Like, how long has your family been, or had they been, in South Africa? Good. So, yeah, in the 70s, uh, the South African government, which was then under apartheid, was effectively welcoming, inviting a lot of uh, foreign talent, as they, they call were. it. Yeah, um, they so they were subsidizing flights and housing, and g- even giving uh, immigrants uh, spending money. And so <laughs> my parents came over in the 70s to uh, be part of that. What was it? Mostly uh, German, uh, English, and uh, some Greeks and Italians that moved to South Africa. Yeah, so the, and there's a good amount of those people actually that at some point ended up moving to Australia for some reason. I don't know why, but I know a lot of people that actually were born and slightly raised in South Africa and then moved to Aussie after that. I don't know. It's That's an, right. It's an interesting country for sure. Yeah, so my main reason there is in the late 90s, um, we had kind of an interest rate spiral out of control. So they went up to like 24% on a mortgage. I remember. I remember. And um, the crime is just insane. So people left. <laughs> are, are you Johannesburg? Yes, that's right. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I never feel comfortable commenting on, you know, beginning with politics, but also safety in another country if I haven't lived there. I only know what I read. And to be fair, I don't believe most of what I read anyway. So... <laughs> Good. So that makes you a contrarian uh, journalist, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, don't you don't you agree? Like, do you disagree with that? Like, if if everything that was written about South Africa or about Germany or about you or anything were really true, like you'd have to flip the world on its head. I mean, I know because I've been in situations where there have been big news events, like okay. the nuclear disaster in Fukushima and stuff like that, and I know what I was reading then, and I know it was all wrong. So okay, interesting. Well, that's a, that's a good uh, healthy dose of realism, uh, and anyway. I completely agree. I mean, once you know a place like South Africa uh, and how amazing it is, um, the crime is more like a byproduct of, uh, of just living there. Right? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's my point. It's like I'd rather go there and experience it myself before I make a value judgment about what is and isn't true. And I guess that gets back to the reason why I like doing this. Okay. Because I like talking to people and telling their stories. We talked about this a little bit offline, but like – no one's really going to get to know you or me or anybody else unless they hear it in their own voice. And to me, that's really important. Okay, good. Anyway, so this is, go tell ahead. me a bit more about what you do. What, is, uh, what does uh, Michael Balze do? Is, are you German descent by any chance? What's the so it's Eastern European. So yes. wait, yeah. Right. And there's some question as to whether it's a made-up name or not, right? Because okay. my family, like your family, moved from their home country to another country and it's up to you know anybody's guess as to whether the name is an original or, or real. But my family is from Eastern Europe, um, moved to the United States, and settled in mostly in Boston. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, interesting. And and so I hear the the strong American accent, um, so that that sort of follows you around. <laughs> but here's something else that's really interesting to me, or may, and maybe only to me. But, but let's just get this out okay. of the way. Right. 
I left the, and this is an interesting conversation already, but I left the United States when I was 24 years old. Right. And okay. I've never lived in a native English speaking country since then. And most of the people that surrounded me, both in Japan, um, I lived in Hong Kong for a little bit. I've done business in all of Asia nice. and in Thailand. None of them are native English speakers, which means that my accent has essentially stayed constant. Okay. Right, awesome. Because it hasn't been influenced, right? So think about it. If I had lived in London or lived in Sydney, I may have a tinge of yeah. Aussie or UK in me, but I don't. So okay. it's really strange for me that I maintain <laughs> this and I don't notice it, right? Because yeah, like, how, right. Long, right. how long have you lived outside of South Africa? Uh, so I've moved out kind of like 2010, you could say. Okay, so not yeah. that long. Eight, not that long, eight years. Eight yeah. years, right. So I've lived outside the United States since 1990, yeah. almost 30 years. Mm. <laughs> okay, good good amount of time, absolutely. But the, it's kind of very clear, crisp accent. And uh, I guess in emerging markets, that's also what people understand, right? Because that's, that's the media that they get exposed to. Correct. Yeah. It, makes my, it, it, actually, and it actually makes my voice like a really powerful tool because <laughs> yes, people right. say that it's very easy to understand. I'm not sure that the things that I say are easy to understand, but the <laughs> words that come out of my mouth are understandable, I guess, is really the key. <laughs> well, that gets you halfway there. That's, that's all good. Definitely a voice for radio. I mean, I believe you do these podcasts, so that's I how do. my wife uh, I kind of referenced you when, when I mentioned your name. Yeah, Michelle, I'd love to talk to her too. So she and I have a, a sort of half and half ongoing conversation. <laughs> okay. I'm working on that. You got to help me out. I can help you there. She's a, she's a lovely, but very conservative. And um, how should I say, it's, uh, she, I wouldn't say shy. but no, but shy is the right uh, word, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shy is the right word uh, because she's not originally from this industry and um, she's kind of worked or gotten herself into this and she's doing a sterling job with Bansy and, and the Angel Network. Right. Um, but she almost tries to avoid to take credit for it because it, you know, she, she's not from uh, financial or investment circles or VC circles. Right. And so she just sometimes feels like she's not that necessarily that authoritarian. But I mean, she comes home and she's like, well, I'm just reading venture deals and I want to know what happens in the uh, equity <laughs> holdings in the third round when you have dilution. <laughs> and I'm going like, what? <laughs> That's crazy to have a dinner table conversation. Exactly. Like Can we just talk about something else a little bit lighter, if you don't mind? But it's good, though. Isn't it great to have a partner who is not maybe in the same exact field, but like who's at least interested in what you say so that even after time when you're having a conversation with Michelle, her eyes aren't glazing over like, oh, God, this is just noise to me. It's like, oh, my God, tell me more because I'm so fascinated by it, right? <laughs> yeah. So that, that helps. Um, I think uh, we, we both uh, do work a little bit too hard for um, kind of for where enough. we are at, at our stage. Um, but absolutely, I think, I think we, we, get, we get along well. And more than that, I think even for me being in the startup journey and and actually having gone this journey completely independent of Bansy, so just to make, yes, make yes, yes. say that up front, right? There's no, no, there's no, no, no there's collusion no, there. No, no um, collusion, no affiliation actually at all. And and, and again, that's a that's, that's right. a great thing, right? And, and that's right. And so she's been just a really great partner to to help me uh, kind of um, support me on this journey. Which so can we, can we talk a little bit about this? Because what you're doing yes. today is not really what you've always been building. And I'm, and I was telling mm -hmm. someone this yesterday as well. Like for me, the interesting part isn't when you kind of hit a home run. It's more those day-to-day, -day, not struggles really, but just sort of the day-to-day -day building and growth. Like you said, uh -huh. that's the interesting part to me. It's like, how did you get to here? And you've been working on a bunch of different things, maybe all kind of in the same realm, but not in the same place. I mean, you lived in Africa. You've done right. a whole bunch of things. Can you just 
keep like walk me through that a little bit and then I want to get to today and talk more about it, what you're doing today because I think that that's fascinating as well. So if you could do that, that would be great. Right. So uh, just to share, I mean, so the, the brief history, of course, being coming from South Africa. And if we put that into context, you know, very much an emerging market, but you've got to be innovative and you kind of got to find your own way. And um, we're pretty far removed from the rest of the world, but we got onto the technology track quite early. And South Africa has always had very mature banking and financial yep. kind of ecosystems. Uh, my own background is, is tech. So I started an internet service provider business when I was 17. Uh, grew that into like four and a half thousand clients and lots of infra and a, and kind of a team of 22 staff. And so Great. that was a good kind of first experience when you're kind of coming out of school, going into university and, and have a pet project that is very tech orientated and, and kind of innovative uh, because we had to design a product, we had to understand what the market wanted. And we, we were kind of providing services that not that many businesses were providing in South Africa. Um, and subsequently got a bit more exposed to the financial markets, which is great to see uh, how the regulated trading space works. And we got into a business where we built tech and we built a business around uh, doing derivatives trading and, and uh, equity swaps. Can you, and, can you talk a little bit more about that? So you know my background, right? Like I worked at Morgan Stanley, I worked at Goldman Sachs, and I actually right. did participate in some of the swaps businesses as well. And I'm just, yeah. and even on the equity swap side. So can you just talk a little bit about, a little bit more about what that was like? Because you never worked at a, like a large global financial institution, right? So how did you get involved in the equity swaps business? How does that happen? Yeah, right. So it's, it's, it's a great journey because what, what you really do is you end up applying yourselves to like the cash flows and the calculations and the maths behind it. And so as opposed to just building a, a pretty website right. or dealing with content management systems, which my ISP business was involved with, um, here we went out looking at like, well, how do we calculate the spreads? How do we do the daily margining? Uh, how do we how do we do the risk management? Do we run an A and B book? Uh, what do we hedge out? And so the way we got into that is we, the business had already started in South Africa, a young team, and I probably was employee number twelve or so. Nice. And um, just coming in with a with a strong tech skill and a bit more, a bit more of the R and D skill. We built this product and it was very simply hacked together and kind of Visual Basic, SQL, and it did a few hundred million every day uh, 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 um, position keeping. Oh, really? And um, that grew very quickly. And then the business kind of said, well, you know, we, we built this back office tool that does this, this settlement and sends out these pretty statements, but we've got to move this online. And so we moved that online into an online um, kind of Java architected system. And uh, we then scaled that business. So we, we kind of moved from Johannesburg to uh, open up a London office, Toronto office, Bangkok office uh, with, a, with a fine gentleman who ran the Asia business. And, um, nice. and so we were trading 23 different markets, 19 different currencies, doing the daily mark to markets and a great business. And we, we actually just perhaps by hindsight correctly sold that business in 2007. Nice. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, everybody got out and did quite all right. Uh, my participation was fairly minor, but uh, it, was, it was a great journey for a kind of 20, early 20-something, 20 25-year-old, 24-year-old to kind of be part of until we exited in 27. And were you making markets and trading your own capital as well, or were you just providing facilitation services to some of the bigger banks? No, so we had we signed up clients directly. We held licenses. Um, we had FSA license, and um, we were we were I wouldn't say market makers, so we weren't as aggressive as IG or City Index or uh, Saxo. But um, I mean, we 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 ran it as as anybody else does run a CFD business, which is you look at your risk and you 
you hedge out and you have direct market access for your traders and um, we were fully fully on the front lines and that taught me a lot about what what a sales and marketing company is about yeah. which is you know tech is one part of the business but the business is actually the service you provide and then the, the, the data the reporting the the information you give to your customers that's that's what they value and do you find that that's something that this is a really interesting point right in other words Tech itself is really hard to build, and the number of people that actually understand the mathematics behind it, the computer science behind a whole bunch of things, it's a limited universe of people. But mm-hmm. inside that universe, the people that actually understand marketing and service, right, customer service, sales service, is even smaller. Do you find that when you try to get on teammates or partners that it's harder to teach them that part of the business than it is sort of the tech side of the business? Uh, I would say that in this space, at this day and age, everybody's kind of accepted that you can solve all these problems through right. tech. Yep. Uh, so even the very complex problems can be solved. But what where there is definitely uh, lacking, and this is how I'd rather approach it than more, more of a sales and marketing strategy, is actually an educational strategy. I love it. And so that, that I think, is much more inclusive. It, it, it builds a lot more trust and it, it gains a lot more kind of credibility. And that's what we used to do with the trading business in terms of seminars, educating people. You know, the analogy is that an equity swap or CFD is effectively like a mortgage on a house where there is a down payment, except that you don't mark to market your house every day. <laughs> and uh, we, we kind of ran people Thankfully. through these seminars. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and um, and that, that educational effort paid off. And, and that's what I'm even seeing in, in my later career experiences is that the way to engage with people is not so much that you force a product down their throat uh, and kind of sell and market to market it to death, but you really kind of create a brand around it. And, and that brand has a strong association with, with the educational side. Um, and, and we're seeing that in the ICO space today. You know, the, the ICOs are doing a phenomenal jobs at selling and marketing, but they really wouldn't be able to raise what they could, what they're raising if it wasn't supported by kind of very clear, insightful, innovative white papers. And that's the educational aspect. Right. So are you involved in the ISO and crypto space as well? Only from the fringes. Um, I would say that as SmartPesa today and, and the startup, which we'll talk to a bit more later, yeah. it, we're looking at enabling that ecosystem because we think that there, the, that definitely it'll be part of the payment and, and agency banking and transactioning space in in future even already now but uh we're, we're not directly into you know trying to raise our own ico or, or trying to build our own blockchain or, or something like that i find that for an ico to really be let's say valid if i p- bring it down kind of to a to a, to a moral please moral do. judgment please do. is that it, it needs to it needs to it needs to have a utility uh you know the token or the, the kind of the proxy that you're creating the blockchain mechanism that you're creating needs to be practically usable and and because that doesn't play directly into our business at this stage, I wouldn't I wouldn't see the merit in launching an ICO and trying to kind of get millions of dollars for something that, that isn't really market relevant. Right. I mean, you've just brought up a topic, obviously, that's very interesting to me, and I don't want to spend so much time talking about it. Sure. But, but you're involved, at least on the fringes. So am I. Mm. Like, do you follow what happens in Singapore closely? The Singaporean government via the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the MAS, um, and their leadership is very interested through some of the projects that they're working on, whether it's with R3 or IBM or some of these other companies about even creating a digital currency there. Like in the conversations that you hear in Singapore, in the finance world, in the fintech world, like what's the opinion on what the regulators are doing and how they're moving to kind of, you know, corral this? Because I, I said this last summer the end of the spring, the beginning of the summer of last year, like there was a window where you could 
sort of do an ICO where no one was really paying any attention and it was a little mm. bit like the Wild West in the United States, right? Okay. <laughs> and now, yes. uh, and if you, if you believe that that characterization is wrong, let me know. But that's kind of what it felt like to me. Right. And I sort of had this feeling that by the end of the year, you know, October, November, and December, that the regulators globally, the SEC, the MAS, you know, and all these, all these regulators, we're going to start looking at this. And I think they have. And I'm just wondering, the MAS feels like they're trying to be leading this, at least in this region. And I'm wondering what your feeling is on what they're doing and how it looks from Singapore and from fintech. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what one to, to come, kind of share with you, uh, I agree that the, the market has been very wild west and the projects that have launched have been proper crazy. Um, a few of them have touched <laughs> on, on real world use cases and, and so they've, those have received great support. Right. But what you've also seen is last year that these ICOs have just raised amounts that were previously unfathomable in, in the traditional VC and, right. and kind right. of... Uh, Particularly at their stage of space. development, right, for the, for the businesses and, and the utility of those businesses as well. Correct, correct, that's right. And, and then so, so where we're at now is that, of course, the regulators are paying attention. The question to them is as to how far should they be involved because right. it does open a whole new can of worms and, you know, are they the ones to judge if this is a good project or not at, at that early stage? They can't be the one making that decision. I do think that there's... Um, efforts now and let's say mas being one of them but other regulators from conversations where there, there might effectively become a vetting process to simply say that this is a uh, a business that is that is structured well that has credible uh, real people behind it um and that is more almost like a, like a due diligence but on a very abstract level and that might not be a white paper because they wouldn't want to judge the tech, they would simply look at, you know, maybe kind of the kind of like a company profile, if I call it that. Um, but actually, I think it's going to play out a bit differently. The Wild West will be tamed by the regulators coming down on the exchanges because it's the exchanges that provide the liquidity. Right, because that's where the liquidity is, and that's the point that I was going to make. But go ahead, because I like this train of thought actually a lot. Well, just to kind of my reading into it, and again, I'm not necessarily authoritative of this, but but kind of understand the markets and how this how this kind of ties in is that the the scrutiny will come down on two things one is the exchange license which you know allows regulators to exert a lot of pressure the second is that the exchange pay taxes and obviously that feeding into point number one and um, as a result the the next the extension of that is to scrutinize the tokens that are listed on those exchanges and deciding if those are utility or security tokens right and through that process effectively making it the exchanges probably problem to scrutinize the tokens and if that is kind of something that is addressed at the g20 summit and kind of harmonized across the globe what we'd have is we'd have the exchanges being the gatekeepers for the icos icos would have to register the exchanges before they could even start the ico process which is reversed uh, as it is now right Completely right, because now it's kind of it's kind of list the ICO, and based on your popularity, you might get listed in one or seven different places. Right, and and kind of by putting these controls in place, the exchanges will then come in and bring structure, and they will make sure that these ICOs comply and follow some sort of new regulated framework. Potentially, even that these exchanges tie up with equity or existing futures uh, exchanges, and so you 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 will end up with a much more regulated space de facto. And you'll see that company, countries like China will lift the stringent bans that they have because they are principally in support of blockchain. It's just that they will do it in their regulated manner. And, of course, they'll clamp down on the speculation such as what is Bitcoin mining. They'll try right, right, to right. kill that off. Right, look, we've already seen, was it the CME or the CBOT in the United States, right, say that they're going to launch Bitcoin futures or they've probably already launched them like back in the fall of last year. Right, that's right. Mm -hmm. But I want to I comment on this 
this exchange thing. And here's my view. And again, tell me where I'm wrong because I'm I'm often wrong, right? And that is you couldn't – like in the private markets, right, in the equity market, something that everybody understands, I can start a company and I can sell you equity in that company right now right. without any real agreement. We'll probably have a shareholders agreement, right? We do this right. all the time in what, what we call pre-IPO stock. But to actually list on an exchange, and, and that is really, anybody can do it, anybody can have it, and it's just governed by the contract that you and I have with each other, not regulated by any kind of industry. But if I want to get on an exchange, there are mm-hmm. listing requirements, right? So on the TSE in Tokyo, on this, you know stock exchange in Singapore, you know on the NASDAQ, on the New York Stock Exchange, there are listing requirements, and you cannot get onto the exchange unless you meet those listing requirements. And there are different totally. sections, TSE1, TSE2, the Mother's Exchange, all these things. And I think you're right. I think because there's precedence for that and because there's some question as to utility versus security, security equals equity at some level. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. some equivalency right. there. That that means then that there should just be a listing requirement. And those listing requirements should be you know transparent and well-known just like it is. I can, I can go check right now. Yes. On the Tokyo Stock Exchange mm-hmm. website and find out what are the requirements, how much revenue do I need, Correct. how many employees, all these things, and how many quarters of continuous revenue at that <laughs> level. And also, yeah. if I'm faking it, that's fraudulent, I can get in trouble for that too. So that's right. It's not like right. this is not, there's no precedent for this. Is that, is that fair? That's right. And so I think what the ICO uh, space has done and primarily through the platforms that allow these D apps to launch is, is just create a side channel for now. And that'll be reined back in. And that's just the way that governments always work and governments exert pressure on you know, uh, in- institutions that they regulate, which is exchanges and banks and the likes. And of course, there's a lot of internal kind of IOUs between all these institutions, right. but they want to, they want to keep order. And uh, you're, you're right. Um, that's, that'll come back to transparent checklists and there won't be any backhanded deals of getting listed on ICOs. Binance is probably one of the better ones that makes sure that any listed products any, any listed coins have real working products behind them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you look at the, the world of exchanges out there, um, a lot of them are terrible and, really and who terrible. knows if they'll be around tomorrow. Uh, I mean, my own kind of, hedge or bet for now is that the, the regulation uh, will keep up and it, it will catch up and keep up and that the, the 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 control still stays within the institutions and that's why we 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 see governments trying to provide stability and security and assurance to for instance banks and and the collateral that they hold because you you know that they'll be around tomorrow right. and the more stability there is even in the emerging markets the more long term things will get i mean mortgages used to be what 5 years or maybe 10 years out and now you get 30 year mortgages because that's the kind of guarantees that the government provides to that bank that's underwriting your mortgage correct and it's the same thing in in the ipo and the stock listing market as well right in the old days and i'm talking about 100 or so years ago you know, and I look through things, whether fortunately or unfortunately, through the eyes of Wall Street. But you know, the people on Wall Street would stand out on the corner and just mm-hmm. say, "This company's for sale. That company's for sale." And you can yes. make you can. And again, it was highly unregulated, and people got ripped off, and there were it was problematic across the board. And then the SEC, which is again self-regulatory, but still government-associated or at least watchdogged, right? So I I agree with you. I think what's going to happen is what's always happened, and that is people are going to go, okay. I got it. This is going to happen. It's going to happen in size. Now we're going to have to pay attention to it. And we'll make sure that, you know, consumers are protected. The people that provide the services are protected and not everything is a scam. Because I think that's the way most things start anyway. 
Right, uh, and, and correct, and, and a lot of it is the experimentation that you need. And so yeah. the, the markets have, uh, and, and the institutions have accepted that the blockchain is, is a valid uh, improvement on, on, on certain transactions. I mean, you do a tra- you, do, you move $10,000 by a bank and you'll pay probably $150 between handling fees and Swift fees and right. maybe some FX conversion. Right. Uh, <laughs> or, or even if you just do US dollar to US dollar, you'll still pay the same fee. And you do that on, on, a, on a blockchain and it'll cost you 73 cents. So the, you know, the, the, there is no reason not to move forward. It, it's just, it's just in which model will it be best managed? And, uh, you know, that's where people, where the techies get into debates between centralized and decentralized and energy efficiency and all the rest. Right. I mean, at some point, someone's going to have to address the energy efficiency that's associated with the mining process. Um, that, Right. And people are already working on it, right? Whether it's through Ethereum or other blockchains where there's not mining, and we can get into IOTA and a whole bunch of other things and the mm-hmm. arguments, you know, between MIT and the IOTA Foundation. But let's not go there because That's that, right. because it's a rabbit hole, right? And we could go there <laughs> Indeed. forever. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Let's and, talk. Let's I mean, go ahead. I was going to say exactly, and 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 really, I mean, I think what, what where the market is really at, and and what what everybody has to remember is that. Kind of, it's still business as usual. You know, we we still got to keep on going our day to days and 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 the, the kind of ventures that we've set off with, and and not just simply jump onto this trend and go launching ICOs. You know, we we're really trying to focus on what the problem is that we set out to solve, and Correct. those are real world problems. And principally, those are non tech problems generally. Yeah, can you just can you just talk a little bit about that? Elaborate on that a little bit, right? You're solving like a non-tech problem with technology. It's just interesting to me, in the same way. And I just wanted to mention this, and then we'll move on to this issue, right? But in the same way that you have all of these exchanges that are meant to trade like distributed currencies with no central location, yet all the exchanges like sit on one server in one town in one place. (laughs) Particular, do you find that not like really ironic? Well, I think I think where the where the irony is is that the, the the crypto libertarians kind of look at this and shake their heads and go, that can't work. I mean, <laughs> technically, that's and, not right. Like kind of from a from a from a kind of jurisdictional point of view, the risk is too high, and so you know they're they're trying to work around the problem already with all these distributed exchanges and decentralized architectures. Um, but what it is doing, and this is perhaps closer to, to our topic of conversation, is it's kind of giving the power back to the people it to should. say, well, we want, we, want, we want to have this freedom of being able to trade you know, one button for, uh, I don't know, one shoe. Um, uh, and so that's, that's where we've traditionally come from, right? It's, it's very much a bartering, trading um, type, type society. And, and that's been removed. I mean, it's been removed in the, in the sense that you can't travel with lots of modern, modern Cash, uh, you can't travel with um, I don't know a bag full of gold, and so you really don't have too many of these kind of trading or hoarding assets that 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 move very freely. And and um, I think the fact that you that you have the ability to be in control is means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And if you look at the sorry, if you look at the development of even the current the modern you know monetary system, you know. What is it? Bretton Woods is 1944, and then the floating of the dollar versus you know gold was in the 1970s. So even the right. current regime is not that old. People think it's been around forever, but <laughs> yes. this concept of I can't take gold and turn it into dollars like ended with Nixon in the in the 70s. So 70s, that's right. It's all right. like the regimes we're living in are still very new. That's right, and and that's where I think the new tech is also coming in to to kind of enable that to further rival that and and. Um, and again, break free from some of those um, 
those those, those man-made rules, right? <laughs> yeah, again, and you made a really good point before. Like humans are really comfortable with barter. Don't you think? I mean, really comfortable with it. It's like, you know what? I have pancakes. You have waffles. Let's just switch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's a really pedestrian example, but you get the point. Right. Right. Oh, I mean, if I I speak a bit more to to where I've seen it in the field is where we take up solutions into these emerging markets, the innovation that you see at the very last mile of the way that people do business and the way that they quickly figure out what is the optimal way to save a few cents here or, or kind of uh, save their time there, it works at a very primal level. They, they, they look at, at the kind of the cost and the effort involved and where they can save. And um, you know, they, they try to be as efficient as possible, and, and that's where the bartering comes from. It's kind of like that's the most simple way to trade. Right. If I have to proxy through three different things, uh, that's difficult. If I've got to take my iPhone out and do my finger authentication, and then this app's got to pop up and it's got to do a, I don't know, a facial recognition, if that takes too long, I'm going to not use it because I, I want the simplest way to transact, and that'll always trump because it'll always trump because it's the most efficient way to. to to exchange are value. You, are you comfortable giving, you know, without giving away names, places, and dates, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but are you comfortable giving sort of a real-world example where you say, you know, it's so obvious to people when you give them a solution that's frictionless, how to make it the most, how to use that system the most efficiently, particularly when you bring your stuff into emerging markets? Can you give, are you comfortable giving an example of that? I mean, I'll just speak to, uh, I mean, even in general terms, to, I'm just our, to, to our space. And so we're, we're really much in the, in the fintech space and, and uh, trying to solve that last mile problem of, of financial inclusion and, and, and payments and, and agency banking. And what that really means is that you're wanting, you're wanting to reduce the barriers for people to transact and uh, kind of get by their everyday chores, which is, you know, perhaps uh, withdraw some cash in order to pay the kids' school fees right. or maybe go to a merchant and pay electronically or maybe to do a fund transfer to your cousin in another part of the Philippines because they want to receive money at the lowest cost. And so where, where, I, kind of, where I kind of see this, uh, this, this figuring out is that once you provide the means to transact more efficiently, the market figures it out in, in two examples. The first one is that we, uh, through the solution, for instance, in the Philippines, can move money real time between any account, any real bank account. And real time meaning it's debited on the, on the sender side, it's credited on the receiver side, and the transaction cost for that is a fixed 30 pesos. So if you're transferring uh, 10,000 pesos and that's a $200 equivalent, you're paying 30 pesos to move $200. You know, try to do that at a Western Union and you'll probably be $20 down. And so the market sees that and understands that and can figure out, okay, the pricing and the efficiency of this real-time account-to-account transfer is hugely beneficial than going to an intermediary who enables that same transaction at a much higher cost. Uh, now, of course, the challenges and the arguments always come back to say, well, not everybody's part of the banking ecosystem. And we're saying, well, that's not actually a problem of the banks. The banks are actively trying to bring more people on board, but they have a cost to doing that. that. And that right, cost is generally right. called KYC. Right. And, of course, in a Western Union, that cost is absorbed by the customer at a, at a bank or at a national level, a regulated institute. They've got to wear that cost. And so the model, the economics change. Um, but what's interesting here is, if I do a fund transfer from myself uh, to you, Michael, that'll cost me 30 pesos. Now, as soon as I label this movement of money a payment, which is now, let's say, from me to the merchant who's selling me, I don't know, a bag of beans or, and, and some Coke, right. uh, some Coca-Cola in this case. Um, <laughs> Let's be careful, right? <laughs> 
you know, the, the definition of that transaction has a, a significant impact because right. now suddenly there, there's no longer this fixed fee. It's now a kind of merchant discount rate and it's set at 3% or 2.5% or some other arbitrary number. Um, and so there's other interchange fees and there's other mechanisms and the settlement is not real time. It's T plus one because, of course, the bank sits on it for a day or maybe two or three even if they can get away with it. Right. So, you know, the, the, the semantics of what is this movement of funds affects that ecosystem. And so what we've seen in my second example is merchants that have that perhaps uh, provide services and the customer will come in and want to pay for those services, but they won't put it through as a payment because the payment is nuanced with all these other fees and, and commercial terms. They'll put it through as a cash out. So effectively, it's as if the customer was withdrawing the money, but they're not advancing the cash. They're actually just keeping the cash because it was now a fixed fee transaction. And they know that that's saving them a certain percentage of transaction fees. And in reality, they're right. I mean, they're principally right, and they've figured that out. And they, you know, that, that's where the market is very innovative in trying to find better ways and lower cost alternatives than what is being dictated to them, let's say, by the incumbents or even by, by higher authorities. Right. And let's put, a, let's put a real number on this, too. You said it, but just for the people that, out there that aren't as familiar with it, right? So if $20 is, is a fee for making a $200 payment, you're talking about a 10% fee. That is really high. But 30 pesos on 10,000 pesos is just really straightforward mathematics. It's just 30 basis points. It's tiny. Right. It's tiny. Right. right. And that's where this becomes really important. But I like the fact that you're making the point that even the merchants and, you know, sort of what appears to be the unbanked, the uneducated, the un-everything are smart enough. And I think in most cases they are smart enough to realize, you, do you mean that if I just change the terminology around this payment and have it be a cash out as opposed to a merchant payment, I can kind of bypass all these what I'll call in my voice is unnecessary right. and ancillary mm -hmm. fees that are associated mm -hmm. with making money payments. And let, let's let's get into a little bit more detail as well. So this is what smart pesos is doing. Is that fair? Right, absolutely. Um, so that's where we're saying at smart peso, we're actually a, a technology uh, player. We're a solution provider, and we've got a platform. A platform is hard to sell, but you can think of it as a as a product that we provide to banks and acquirers and financial institutions to enable new services in the last mile because those let's say what we primarily target is called underbanked right, um, right. are those that aren't poor i mean they're running a business they got a convenience store they got a pharmacy they maybe sell lpg gas uh, they've got inventory uh, they receive monies they have to pay their suppliers they're principally economically active it's just that they don't fall into the the prime definition of what that banked customer should be because maybe they're two hours removed from the city center or they're, they're on the fringes uh, or maybe even in the countryside or just the lesser developed areas where there's less financial infrastructure. Uh, what we've seen is that through the many conversations I've had um, in all of these markets, if it's from Cambodia to Nepal, from Sri Lanka to Philippines and even parts of Africa, is that you know, the, the individuals in these financial institutions tend to believe that there's a there must be a way to leapfrog all the infrastructure and just create a mobile wallet and you give somebody a phone with a QR code and that problem solved. But what you're really doing by if, what, what you're really missing by, by making those assumptions is you're taking away the identity of the person. You're taking away the existing mechanisms that assist in dispute resolution. You don't have the, the, the trust from a regulated financial institution to underwrite those transactions. So what we've already said is we don't believe that the wallets are out there and going to kill the rest of the financial market uh, and take over the world. We also don't think that crypto is necessarily going to do that. But what we do think is that 
the banks together with the kind of existing way that they've been doing business, which is doing the KYC, giving customers bank cards, kind of identifying them, giving them this token with which they can transact at any intermediary, which is now effectively digital cash, because that's really what that, that card, that chip card or you know, contactless card represents, is that is a more efficient way to transact. And ultimately, it reduces the cost of transactions and it does that in two ways it does it for the customer because there's a much greater efficiency in the transaction but it does it for the financial institution because if you look at the cost of handling cash which is moving cash you know from a, a store that comes to deposit it at the branch and they move that cash into their treasury and then they move it into the security vans and the security vans drive out to these right. ATMs right. and then you know, the, the whole process is hugely expensive uh, you know why don't you just as a bank offload that and enable your merchants who are your businesses that you do business with to become your bank branches and to become your your access points and so you can enable payments for the merchant to get paid but you can open up a whole range of financial services which include you know cash in cash out funds transfers bills payments remittances uh wallet top-ups and the like at these locations and that means you can scale and you can you can scale within a real world infrastructure as opposed to expecting the consumer to change their behavior. Right. So can you? This is a really interesting point, right? That very few people even try to make. But can you talk about how you lose your identity? So again, I like to put statistics around things because it puts it into context, right? So you talk about potentially twenty five million crypto wallets, and I presume when you talk about wallets, you're talking about um, cryptocurrency style wallets. And even if not, right? There are about twenty five million out there. I think that's a high estimate. And even if half of them, even if all of them are being used, there are about three and a half billion people connected to the internet. It's about mm -hmm. 70 to 71 basis points. Again, a tiny number of all the people that are using it. But right. if it's half of that, then you're talking about 35 basis points. It's just, it's a minuscule number. But one of the things that the, the crypto enthusiasts will say is that you maintain all of your own data. You, that becomes your identity. But you said mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. That you lose your identity when you do that, and it's more—it's almost more beneficial from a um, <clears throat> from a dispute resolution standpoint to be part of the existing system. It's an interesting concept, right? That most people don't talk about. How does that work, and how does that allow you to keep your identity in the way that you were explaining it? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good point that you've raised, and I think where we where we where we see this coming home to roost, is you're looking at the unbanked and underbanked. And so these are smart individuals who kind of have their daily struggles, yep. but they're principally not you know, that educated to the point that, that they understand all the complexities that go with you know, the, all these KYCs and, and, and banking rules and so on. And they need, they need hand-holding. You, know, you, you can't expect them to walk around with a crypto <laughs> private public key. And, uh, it's a good point, actually. Abstract, right? They need hand-holding. And, and so they need this kind of what, we, what I term kind of assisted banking, which is you know, they need others to, you know, in good faith, help them do these transactions. And and there, and that is there's billions I mean, of of us I mean billions of people in the world that that you really just want to get on with their day to day and um, and and are quite happy to give up their 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 privacy and with that I mean not in a malicious way but in a in a, in a kind of in a, right in other words they don't need to operate on the fringes so there's a certain amount of as you said earlier right this dystopian view of what the crypto world will look like. Um, and you'd think that people are willing to give up, like, I'm happy to put my money in a bank if you just give me a way that I can do it in a way that's simple and easy for me to use because I don't really want to sit on my phone and go, what's the app again I use for that, for the crypto thing that I have no understanding of, right? It's possible that that's the case. 
Com- completely right. And and so extending that that definition of a wallet, of course, we have to include the likes of the the WeChat and the Alipays and now there's Grab and in Singapore there's Liquid Pay and Fav Pay and you know, we, the list goes on. And um, so recent article that I put out in uh, the um, uh, FinTech News was about the fragmentation of this payment landscape. And so to your point exactly, you know, which app did I use and how, what is my balance in there and can I actually convert from this to that? That gets very very confusing. The only way, in my opinion, to really take care of that problem and I will call it a problem is a top-down regulation and, and very few governments have the muscle to force that I would say Singapore's done a sterling job uh, Rwanda's doing a very good job there uh, Philippines is up there with uh, the, the BSP and Banknet consolidating and trying to harmonize that payments ecosystem right India of course has come in very strong um, gonna have to UBI. right yep absolutely they, they did that with the biometrics and the, and the Adahara system however again they, they need to consolidate that more because if you end up with this fragmentation and you end up with so many different wallets then that's really of no benefit to the consumer none of, none of the service providers are going to create critical mass and worse than that and if you can see it today with the big Alipay and, and WeChat is that there is no interoperability so you end up stuck with funds in one system and you can't use them on another system. And that's just that's just terrible for the consumer. Well, it's a terrible user experience. And, you know, gosh, if you forget what your password is in one place, again, because it's distributed, like I have a, du- you know, I look at the distributed ledger technology and, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain stuff from multiple different views, right? But one of the problems is if you forget your password, like who does your customer service, right? If it's really distributed and it's not associated with any government or any sort of entity, Who's going to serve you in the end? I think it, you bring up a really great point there. You also, I mean, and you did this in passing a little bit, but I'm very interested in this, and maybe this is just for me, that you threw into a conversation we were talking about, um, you know, money. You threw Rwanda into this. Mm-hmm. And I think most people will listen and not understand why. But Rwanda and Burundi are two very small parts of central East Central Africa, right? That sit next to Tanzania and the, and, and the Congo. But what those, both of those countries have done, if I understand correctly, is they've said, we're small. The surrounding areas for us are very resource rich. Some of the deepest resources in the entire world, actually, particular for rare earth. And we should run a financial, you know, economy the same way that they do in the UAE and frankly, the same way that they do in Singapore. So have you do you have experience in working in Rwanda and Burundi and is that like are you doing business there as well and how does that sort of fit into the rest of the stuff that you're doing Right. So good. And I think that's that actually a good good uh, short story to cover. Um maybe just the caveat is that Burundi is in its own league and probably more of a basket case whereby Rwanda's kind of the gem of Africa. Yeah, and, Rwanda is uh, the gem of Africa, but most people don't understand mm-hmm. that. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Very very true. And and so you, the only analogy I can t- really raise there and um, I'm a very pro-Rwanda uh, enthusiast because I draw similarities to Singapore right. but the fact is that it, not only is the resource um, poor its neighbors have all the resource right. but its neighbors are also very dangerous right. and so you <laughs> know, that's where the guns up, are and that's where all the danger lies and so Rwanda's really locked itself down and so um, I spent three years there from uh, 2010 to 2013 Interesting. and um, really lived in Kigali Central and you know seen large parts, large swaths of Central Africa you know, from the Congo side through to the Kenya side um, and Mwanza down in in, um, in, uh, in Tanzania and um, the point that I'm making is that they really realize that the only way to uplift that country and to bring 
benefit to their people is to provide an, a stable economic environment, to provide a, a strong leadership that pulls people in a single kind of consistent direction, right. and that there has to be a bit of an iron fist that rules, but in the interest of the people. And again, the, the people are uh, at a socioeconomic level that still has so much room to grow because the GDP of, of Rwanda sits at somewhere, I think is uh, six, $700 a year, right? So you're looking, you're talking at really the bottom Right. So and half, half of Vietnam or lower, right? So very low. And so what they've really done, and and this is where kind of where the story comes together, is I spent that time there and I looked at this financial inclusion problem because, as as a as, a, as an outsider, I was struggling with you know the, the basic transactions of even paying a hotel digitally or filling up my car with gas. Or, or paying for visas uh, with with my Mastercard right. uh, to to cross the borders, and so because of this this kind of um, difficulty in transacting, there's a lack of credit, there's a lack of uh, liquidity, right. Right. and so we started the project there, and we kind of said, can we build Smartpesa to address the problems of the market like this? And we worked closely with the central switch, uh, our switch there, and we we experimented and <clears throat> kind of um, kind of got got our feet wet. And so I afterwards brought this back to Singapore and, and took on a, a few other bigger markets. Uh, and Africa is unfortunately slow in the way that it moves. It, it needs to be really, it needs to be pushed very hard. Um, there is still a lo very low capacity within the institutions and within the the, the general marketplace. But um, but there's a lot of room to innovate. And what the government there did is simply said, we need to get people financially included. We need to create interoperability between mobile money and bank accounts. We need to be able to issue secure chip cards you know we're not going back to some old technology like the u.s uh, right, right, running right. On, on on mag swipe cards right. we're going to bring trust and, and we're going to remove the fraud and the, and the, and the disputes and um <clears throat> so it, it's really kind of kind of hunkered down and what that does uh michael that i can share Tell me. is it brings the neighboring regions to start paying attention not right, only are they right, somewhat right. looking at this and going Damn, these guys are really moving in the right direction. You know, foreign direct investments, hotels popping up, conferences are starting to take place, the airports upgrading. Yep. Kagame has got a strong kind of uh, kind of unified, harmonized policy. But what they're doing is the neighboring kind of middle to upper classes are hedging their bets and parking their money there, and kind of kind of Classic, putting right? their confidence in Rwanda, even though they might not get along per se. Uh, in a political debate, and they're very strong. They're, they have each their very strong own cultures, but they do understand that this is a, a kind of a, a long-term play that's hopefully going to play out very well and, and create that Switzerland or Singapore within the heart of Africa. Yeah, or the UAE. I mean, I look at it a little bit like right. Dubai as well, right? Dubai. DFC, right? Which, you know, if you looked at it 10 or 11 years ago before they built the DFC, everyone said, you know, great, it's an oil-rich place, but they're never going to get this thing done, and now it's the financial center of the Middle East. It's just really interesting the way this works. And I, I think you make another really great point, and that is what the Rwandan authorities have done is essentially shame the surrounding areas into saying, you know, your neighbor looks at your house and it's not burning down. You have a nice car. Your kids are wearing nice clothes and they're looking over there going, whoa, how, how come we can't live like that and that kind of safety and that kind of cleanliness? And, and then the other governments are like their feet are put to the fire and they say, okay, we can clean up everything here as well. If we can, if Rwanda can do it, we can do it and we can make things better. And better is always, you know, good for the populace and also good for the governments as well, because nobody really cares who's running a country as long as everybody feels safe and, and sound, right? I mean, in the end, everybody wants the same thing. They want their kids to eat. They want to live in a safe place and they just want general happiness. Yeah. 
Correct, and and that's that's the stability that that really uh, people expect from from a strong leadership. And of course, it's a fine line between you know sure. classifying this as a as a dicta- dictatorial regime. Don't care. And uh, you have a few human rights groups that sure. that um, kind of point shout out or try to make st- cases. But in reality, it it has its benefits. And as a society, there's some compromise that that is expected. That is, you know, you don't go spray painting other people's cars or right. buildings, and you you don't steal. And uh, I mean, I think so. Rwanda was rated the second safest place in the world for a woman to walk around at night after Singapore. Right. And having lived there, I can vouch for that. I mean, you will see on guards, you will see you know, army patrols and whatnot, but it's not because you know, they're, they're out to fight a war. It's because they're providing the safety that you'd expect. It's just a show of force. Look, in 1991, okay, I got on a bus mm-hmm. in Hanoi, I believe, and I was going out to Haolong Bay. Is that right? Do I have my yeah. geography right? Yeah, and it was right. it was it was me and two of my other friends from Morgan Stanley at the time. We were all Americans. We got on the bus, right? It was a small bus, maybe a little van, and there were three young ladies from Singapore. Mm-hmm. You know, and we hadn't been outside the United States, none of us, for more than a year or two. And Singapore was just a dictatorship, right? And you know, we'd been <laughs> there, but we didn't know much about it. You know, we were Americans, right? So you thump your chest a little bit and say democracy is the best way, blah, blah, blah. All the normal things that 24-year-old kids from America would say. And these three <laughs> women looked at us at, at the time and they were just like, you know what? Our country's safe. Our country's organized and everybody has a job. Like we give up a little bit to get things that we think are more beneficial to us. You guys go ahead and do whatever you want kind of thing. And it, it was just a learning experience for me, right? And I believe in almost all cases, if you have an open mind, right, a system can be different than yours, but you can learn something from it as long as you're listening. And Rwanda's kind of doing the same thing. And that is, sure, we'll give up a little bit, like you said, on the privacy side, and maybe it's more on the self-determination side. But the benefits that we get way outweigh those detriments, and we're just going to keep doing it. And that's obvious, and that's what you're doing as well, right, with, <clears throat> with your business. And that is you're providing people an ability to transact, to get credit in this digital economy in a way that they couldn't have done before. And that's one of the benefits that they're getting from this safety and organization, if that's fair to say. Michael, and that, that's right. And, and that's really what I see as the starting point. I mean, we know that ultimately in the transaction space, payment space, the, it's like from a commercial point of view, it, the numbers have to scale really big to make it worth anybody's while. Right. But the, the spinoff there for anybody in the financial institution space and, and the MFI space getting into this will very quickly realize that when you have these businesses transacting, you end up with records of their transactions. You end up supporting that business and you'll ultimately end up lending not right. only against that business, but even the people that going to go to that business who might request a loan over the counter, who might withdraw their cash loan at that counter, who will repay at that kind of agency branch. And so you're enabling a whole bigger ecosystem, which is credit, which is really what the emerging markets need to flourish. Because when you're working in a, in a cash economy, there is no credit, there is no transaction history, and that stifles a lot of the growth. And so with the right kind of technology, and, and really call it a, a top-down approach, you can harmonize that and you can create a lot of information that, that tends to benefit the citizens a lot. So I don't want to make it sound all too altruistic. And no. Not a pro bono. But it's more about <laughs> where the vision is going. Right? So. right. But look, and again, the point here is that um, you can have a business in Rwanda or in the Congo or anywhere that's generating cash. But the real, like statistically speaking, the real growth engine for any economy is credit. Your ability mm-hmm. to say, I will receive money in two months. I need money now to generate that. And I have a history of generating, generating income, which supports my necessity for credit. 
if you lend me that money, you'll get your money back. And if you believe, as you said, that you are like, if you're guilty by association, then you're not guilty by association as well, right? So if you are who you associate with, as you said, mm -hmm. if there are businesses out there that are taking um, other business from other companies, by definition, those other businesses should be um, available for credit as well, right? Indeed. And and that's if that's how this business is going to work, then that's fabulous. And like you said, we're not. It's not a charity. It's not pro bono. But right. but you can do well by doing good, yeah. Well, that's right. And so we were sort of kind of encouraged. I'm very pro these kind of lending platforms that come in and want to want to help these institutions sure. and and kind of what is it like Kiva who want to help fund projects yep. in in some of these emerging markets. The difficulty always still is that the recipient who's in a less developed <laughs> correct, ecosystem correct, correct. doesn't have the right infrastructure to make that easy for them. Right. And again, you know, the fees and the, and the hurdle rates are very high. So I think both kind of feed into each other. The question is always kind of who, who kind of buys into the strategy, who, who makes that their business to go out there. And I think that's where we're really finding the markets to be quite different because it's certainly not the banks. The banks uh, kind of want to capitalize on the business but they're not necessarily the first movers who are who are going to take the risk. And so we really come down to a simple problem, which is a distribution problem. Who's going to enable the distribution to reach the last mile? And if it's not a if it's not a mobile app sitting on a smartphone, then it has to be something something in the physical world, which is probably a logistics company, an FMCG operator, uh, maybe a pharmaceutical company that has the reach and says we're going to help solve this problem because the banks don't have it in their own nature to go into that last mile. Right. And, I, and, I, and you've used this term a few times, right? That last mile problem, whether it is in the delivery of physical goods, right, which companies are addressing throughout the emerging markets. And it's really important, right? Because that's a problem. If you can't get access to whatever that thing is that you want access to, it's a problem. But from a financial mm -hmm. services perspective, using last mile as a term is actually quite interesting to me. And it's a, it's a new concept, meaning I've got to literally get out to that you know, really distant place and provide that person with a financial service because mm -hmm. that is going to allow them then to get credit from a real bank. Correct. And then, Michael, where we've seen this work is we've seen it work, work very successfully in the telcos who distribute airtime through sure. scratch cards, sure. right? You, you find agents everywhere. The, the difficulty, though, the, 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 the challenge is that these banks, sorry, that these telcos don't provide the right kind of financial services. They don't, these agents don't necessarily have the liquidity and they're not part of that central kind of unified, all-inclusive open loop financial system. So you, you've seen distribution work, networks work very well, but yet that's not necessarily translated into a financially inclusive distribution network. It might just be more on product or airtime. Right, but that's where this last mile concept actually becomes quite interesting, right? Because that's Correct. what you are doing, right? Correct. That's what we're looking look, to enable. Yeah. Look, so the smart pacer, right? Really fascinating. And I, I learned something. You can tell in my voice. Like, I'm not asking because I'm not interested. I'm really interested. I, I feel like I could go on forever. Why don't we stop here so you can get back to work? Um, Thank you, Michael. No, Thorsten, this has been a really, really interesting conversation for me. And let's um, let's tell each other that we'll revisit this again in a few months so I can find out like what's new, how things are going. We didn't even get a chance to talk about growth or any of those things. We didn't talk about AML. We talked a little bit about KYC, but there's so much more to address. So hopefully you'll come back and do this again. I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Michael. Great, great for sharing and uh, good conversation.